Hello, beautiful. And what I would really like to know is, what is good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. I'm so excited because today is a very special episode. It is the first of a three-part special series in partnership with the Military Officers Association of America, or MOA. And I love this organization. They help their members transition out of the military exceptionally well. So I highly, highly recommend them. And we're going to talk so much more about it with my guest. So with that said, let me introduce to you who I have with me today. I have a veteran sister from the Navy. And you know how I get when Navy is up in the house. Go Navy. Not that I don't love everybody, but you know, I'm Navy. So anyway, I have a 35-year veteran with me today. An amazing woman. We're going to talk all about her career. I don't want to spoil anything. Welcome to the Female Veterans Podcast, Pat Williams. Hi, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Kia, for this opportunity. I can't tell you how much it means to share our veteran stories with the rest of the world. I believe that there's a culture of silence surrounding our stories. And that's why I created this podcast, because I felt like it was important. And especially because there's a prevailing perception even today that veterans are men, which is beyond me. And we're going to break that down (laughs) one story at a time. So welcome to the show. And I'm going to jump right into it. What made you join the military? Well, you know, the military wasn't something that my family had traditionally joined. I was the first in my immediate family to join. And I had gone through college, interestingly enough. But when opportunity knocks, you just got to respond. I had gone through college. I hadn't found the kind of work I was interested in. I majored in communications, radio and television. You know, I could have been a you one of these days, but, (laughs) but my destiny was a bit different. So I took the test with a friend of mine trying to be that supportive caring friend. She was interested in joining the Navy. At the time, I was not. She joined in a year later. I said, "Hmm, this looks like a pretty good option. So I joined and enlisted actually in the Navy and did five years as a yeoman or doing administrative type work, the old army. You know, we love the army, except on that one day, which was yesterday. But um, (laughs) the old 71 Lima administrative clerical type work. So I did that for about five years. And then one of my department heads said, you know, why in two Williams, which is Yeoman second class Williams, mm-hmm. my wife tells me you have a degree. Why haven't you applied to officer candidate school? And I was loving the time I was doing as an enlisted sailor. So after five years, I did go off to officer candidate school and the rest, as they say, is history. Okay. So I love these stories of enlisted and officers. I have had a, a handful of them. And I think that's amazing because it's the best of both worlds in, in my opinion. Okay. So I loved being enlisted. I loved it so much. And I imagine it must be so much fun to be an officer though, although a lot of pressure from what I hear to perform more pressure, I should say. But so let's go back and I want to hear you did boot camp then. So what was boot camp like for you? (laughs) You know, I had graduated college. So, you know, I'm not braggadocious or anything, but I just sailed right through boot camp because it's on a high school level, right? So I excelled at the top of my class. I went in because I had graduated college. I went in as an E3. Mm -hmm. So 
they knew I had a little bit more experience, especially academically. So I was put in charge of things. It was eight weeks, though, of boot camp and adjustments and getting used to, you know, people walking down the hallway, yelling and screaming. And, you know, all of their uh, instructions were for a purpose. And I went in beautiful, wonderful Orlando, Florida. At the time, it was the only, a long time ago, it was the only place women were allowed to go. So you can see how things have changed. So Mm -hmm. often throughout my career, I was the only one, the one at the table when I did make it to the table. But in boot camp in Orlando, it was amazing. I did a great job there. I graduated tops of my class. They just used to call me AJ squared away recruit. (laughs) I just took it very seriously. I did everything I was asked to do. I tried to do my best. And like I tried to tell anyone who I had the privilege of working with or working for me is you give 150% 24, 7, 365 because you're always on. So I approached boot camp, those eight weeks of boot camp with that same enthusiasm. And I graduated tops in my class and I got to be off on graduation weekend when most people had some kind of watch. So I joined some other families, went to Disney World. Then I went off to Yeoman or YNA School in Meridian, Mississippi, which was nice because I got to go back home. I'm originally from Mississippi, got to go back home and be in A school training to be a Yeoman for those six weeks. So that that worked out really well to graduate tops of my class because I was academically inclined. So mm-hmm. I graduated tops of my class from A school because you had a lot of other your male counterparts there. And I'm thinking if my male counterparts are there and doing it, I want to excel and do exactly what they're doing. I want to show that I can. And so graduated tops of my class in A school and got to go off to sunny Southern San Diego, California for my first tour of duty. So I spent the first five years at a wonderful squadron, DRC-30, Fleet Logistics Support Squadron in San Diego. So that was awesome. Amazing, amazing time. Great leadership, great camaraderie. So I had a really good time there. I think the leadership makes all the difference for for your experience. From what I've heard, talking to all of the, the sisters that I've spoken to over the last two years, it depends on your leadership, no matter when you served. If it was it really the 70s, does. Really 80s, the leadership is so important. If you don't have good leadership, you have a miserable experience. And if it really you do, makes a huge difference. it's amazing. I really enjoyed my time. I was at uh, Naval Hospital Great Lakes and it was different then because they were winding down Orlando at the time when I was serving. And then it shifted all the boot camp. People came to Great Lakes right yeah. after I joined. So that that was a big change that was happening when I was in, and I loved boot camp too. Did you did you make any close friends when you were in boot camp or A school? I did, and I made some that I've lost touch today. But for years, I kept in touch with both my boot camp friends and my A school friends and my officer candidate school friends because I went through OCS a few years later. That was sixteen long weeks as opposed to eight. Mm-hmm. You're right. I did make some close friends throughout the Navy. I remember my mom telling me. You know, when I would go from duty station to duty station, aren't you going to be lonely in this duty station or isn't this going? I'm like, no, because when I get there, I'm going to know someone who's there already because it's true what they say. The Navy and the military is truly a small world. So Mm -hmm. I've kept in touch with a ton of people throughout my career. And it's amazing the people I'm still in touch with to this day. And you're right. I think leadership is so important because, you know, a lot of officers are great. But when you've come from the enlisted field, 
you have that instant credibility. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. you've got to continue to perform. That only takes you so far. But when they know that you've got that little red badge of courage on your chest, the Good Conduct Medal, then they know, hey, wait a minute, this person's done it, been exactly where I've been. They've been there. They've done that. So it gives you that instant credibility that you can then start a little bit ahead of the pack, if you will. I really want to talk about how being enlisted uh, impacted your career as an officer. But before we do that, I want to talk about your time being enlisted a little bit more. So were you in San Diego the whole time you were enlisted? Is that what you said? Correct. So my question is, you had a great time there and San Diego is beautiful. <laughs> I, never, I never hear people say bad things about San Diego. But did you face any challenges during your enlisted career that you had to overcome? challenges, it was more, and I guess some people could call them challenges. To me, it was about proving myself Mm. and about that self-worth. Because when I got to the squadron, it was a squadron of like 500 or so people. And they were mostly, it was an aircraft squadron. So most of the people, you know, their jobs were considered important because of what they did. Well, I wanted to make sure that people knew that what we did and sort of the HR world, if you could term it that, you know, was also important. So I think the challenge for me was making sure that I was one, number one in what I did in my job all the time. I wanted to be at the top and I didn't want there to be any doubt. You know, I I guess you could say it was perfection, you know, the, this notion of perfection, but because I didn't want them to think that any work that we were doing in the administrative side was any less important than what they were doing in the maintenance side or whatever the case may be. So I wanted to make sure that I placed myself in those situations. So it was challenging sometimes to volunteer, like when I wanted to be the communications yoga. And so it takes leaders, it takes really good leaders to say, okay, I trust in Hedy Officer Williams. I believe, even though she's female, even though she's admin, administrative, she can do this work. And so those kind of challenges were somewhat difficult. But once you, you know, showed them that you, you were capable of doing the work and you had that person who believed in you, give you that opportunity, then of course you have to prove that you can do the job. And so I was able to do that successfully. I absolutely identify with that because when I shifted from, I was a hospital corpsman. And when I shifted from working in the clinic and doing medical records, they wanted me to start doing like PA work, like physician assistant work. And I didn't want to touch people. (laughs) So it wasn't for me. Okay. So, and I was thinking about C-School and I was kind of torn between going for x-ray tech or to do vision and to, <laughs> to do all that kind of stuff or to do pharmacy, which is what I excelled in and A school was what's my top favorite thing to do. And so I decided to go OJT into the pharmacy and they reluctantly accepted me <laughs> because I had to prove myself, right? They weren't sure about me, right? So I had to go in there knowing that the girl they were trading me for, she wanted to be an EMT. So she needed to come out of the pharmacy and get into the clinic. And I wanted to come out of the clinic and go to the pharmacy. So she and I worked out a deal and then they had to sort of honor it. Right. And so the pharmacy was very sad to lose her because she was just such a great girl and they weren't sure of who they were getting. (laughs) So when I went over there, I really had a hurdle in proving myself. And it took me about six months to win everyone over. 
except the commander. Commander Hirsch was my day one. <laughs> so, so he was amazing from the very beginning. But I will tell you, I worked my butt off to, to show everybody that I was serious. I was dedicated. I could do the work and I would excel. And I remember the day that they gave me the keys to the narcotics locker, that's a huge amount of trust. <laughs> so that I could count the narcotics and make that report. That was huge for me. That was like my moment of many, my first of many moments there that I was like, they trust me. I got this. I proved myself and it was an amazing feeling. So I totally identify with what you're talking about and how you had to prove yourself. It is challenging. And I think a lot of us, um, especially as females, could identify with having to prove yourself in whatever field and whatever branch you're in during whatever time period you served. So tell me, when you finished your career as enlisted, you had to go to OCS. What was that like? Oh, wow. That was so traumatic. And I didn't want to go. I'm in San Diego, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. I'm loving life. Mm. I'm junior enough where I didn't have all of the responsibility of the leaders, but I'm also senior enough where I wasn't doing the crappy jobs either. So I was at this perfect, I was an E5, getting ready to put on E6. So I was at this perfect point in my career. In, in sunny Southern California, I was living two miles from NAS North Island, from Naval Air Station North Island on Coronado. I was working part-time. So I was the training yeoman at the time, responsible for all of the training of the squadron. And I was working a part-time job, so I was making enough money. And because of mentoring and networking, you know, my boss is like, you know, and I said, why would I go to OCS for 16 long weeks? I've been through boot camp before. And he's like, you run this training department better than any of my officers. You should be an officer because of the great leadership skills. And so it's a testament to him and his commitment and his belief in his people that I went off to officer candidate school and I did go off to OCS and I would send back letters and pictures because they were like a family. I had been there for five years and it was so funny. The people that I left behind there, they would say when I would send the cards and pictures that Commander Baker was running around like a proud papa. You think you were one of his daughters because I wanted to share the success. And again, because I had been in the fleet and I got there and I was in E6 by now, they trusted me with leadership. So I was in charge of these young men and women who were in OCS as well, who were my company mates, who hadn't had any military exposure. So I was in charge of one of our companies. And interestingly enough, several of my OCS candidates I'm still in touch with today. Most of them have retired. One of them lost their lives on 9-11. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just a very close camaraderie. We had such a great kinship. And we struggled, a lot of them, especially with the concepts like uh, the classes like navigation or piloting or maneuver, they call it moldboard maneuver, those types of seamen and navigation classes that they weren't familiar with. So it was, it was a joy trying to help them and trying to learn that the physical aspect of it was a little bit challenging. I got shin splints a lot in both my legs because we were in Newport, Rhode Island at the time. That's where you went through boot camp. And so, I mean, also Canada school. And so you, we had a lot of running. I mean, a lot of running. So um, if you didn't prepare properly, even though I had been active duty and been taking the physical fitness test for five years, I still wasn't prepared as physically as I could have been for officer candidate school. And, and at that time, the greatest challenge, I think, was learning how to swim. Because in boot camp, you didn't have to know how to swim. You just had to learn how to tread water, how to survive and make it through. Because typically, if you're in the Navy, you're on a ship, you're not, if you're out to sea, you're not going to be able to swim to shore, right? So mm -hmm. it wasn't the notion of learning how to swim. So I had to learn how to tread water. But in OCS, it was different. 
in order to graduate, you had to learn how to swim. You had to swim the length and the width of the pool. And then you had to jump off the tower. Jumping off the tower was no problem. I could jump off that 35-foot tower, no problem. But even though I had taken some swimming lessons when I was in San Diego, as an adult, learning how to swim and you didn't grow up in that environment was very difficult for me. But I did it. I had six weeks of intensive swim, EI, as they call it, extra instruction. and learn how to swim. So that was one of the big challenges. Some people didn't make it. Some people, it took them several times to make it through some of the more engineering related classes like the pilot and the celestial navigation, those types of courses, the charting, the mapping. And so trying to help bring those classmates along was one of the greatest challenges, but at the same time, one of the greatest joys that I had at OCS. But the 16 weeks were long. I wore tennis shoes for a long time because of my shin splints, but I eventually overcame that and was able to do everything I needed to do physically and wow. loved Newport. Beautiful as well. It sounds like a challenge. Uh, <laughs> we did we did have to swim in boot camp, actually. When I went through, we did the tower. We had to tread. We had to swim the length and width of the pool. I remember that very clearly. Um, I just barely made it. And I swam. I grew up swimming. <laughs> like, but I, but it, I think it was, it was the tower for me. <laughs> it was the tower for me. I mean, I did it. I don't know how I did it, but I know I did it. <laughs> so, but, I, but I can just imagine 16 weeks. Wow. That's a lot. And it seems it seems like you did a lot to help your peers, which is amazing. So after OCS, where did you land? Wow. You know, it's funny when um, everybody around me and my company, they were all getting their orders, you know, to their first duty stations. Everybody was so excited. I'm going here and I'm not getting anything. And I'm like, wait a minute. What am I chopped liver? Do I not get to go somewhere? And so my company officer, I'll never forget him. Lieutenant came over and he says, you know, they call them dream sheets for a reason. So you fill out these little wish lists where you might want to go. And I had put, again, anything south of Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> San Diego, warm weather. I'd go back to San Diego. I'd go to Georgia, Florida, any of those southern states. And he says, you know, they call them dream sheets for a reason, but you don't always get your choices on there. Sometimes it's needs of the Navy. It's where the Navy needs mm-hmm. to send you. So we need you in Connecticut and rotten grotten. I'm like, What? And he's like, there's a, a captain there. She's in the human resource. At that time, it was called General Unrestricted Line Community. And they re- specifically requested if we had anyone in officer candidate school who had administrative type skills, because she was struggling with some of the people that she had at her command. And she wanted someone who knew how to do admin. And lucky me, I'm there. I was a former yeoman. So mm-hmm. they're like, you're perfect. You had a YN background. You know admin. This will be perfect for the captain there. So they re- requested you. I'm like, they didn't request me. They don't know me. They just know that I had those skill sets. So I ended up in Groton, Connecticut. I always called it Rotten Groton, but I <laughs> love that place. And today, today, 2021, I went there in, oh my gosh, I don't want to tell you. I'm sorry, guys, I already know I did 35 years. I graduated in July of 89 and I got there in like August of 89 and I did two years there. And submarine base through London, Connecticut, Groton, I was at the personnel support activity there in Groton, Connecticut, worked there for two years. And I am in touch today with people that I met at that command. I love that. That's the kind and of I was story administrative I love. officer. And later I went there to do admin because of the struggles they had. So I did administrative officer, budget and supply. And so I just had a really great time there. 
That's amazing. <laughs> Definitely the needs of the military come first. <laughs> and it happened to me that way. Actually, I ended up in Chicago. Chicago was actually my my choice. So to stay at, at the Naval Training Command because I had these two girlfriends that I had become so close with when we were in A school. And um, we all selected Great Lakes because we thought that if we picked the command nobody wanted, we might have a chance of staying together in, in our career for a bit longer. Two out of the three of us got it. And our friend had to go where she was needed. She went to Camp Pendleton. But when it was time for me to pick orders again, I served when Bill Clinton was president. <laughs> so, And we all know that he decreased defense spending. And I was told guess what? We need bodies at Great Lakes. <laughs> you, and we don't have, and we're not sending people a lot of places. So it has to be really needed for you to go there. Right. So I ended up doing my entire service in at Naval Hospital Great Lakes and the whole time, but I loved it. I, I actually really love that command. And I am like you in touch with many, many people that I served with there to this day. You mentioned Bill Clinton. I worked at the White House under in the Clinton administration as a yeah, as one of the military aides, helping wow. out with, as a White House social aide. And they were they were very. I mean, people can say what they want about the administration, but they were very good to us. They recognized that we were there in service to our country. They were very supportive of us. They were very helpful. The entire administration, whether it was the president, the vice president, or any of them, they were all very professional, very courteous, and very thankful of our service. And because, you know, he came from Arkansas and I was from Mississippi at my very last, you know, you get a picture taking opportunity, photo opportunity with the president. If you've served in the White House for at least one year, you get the opportunity to take a picture with the sitting president, right? And so we're chatting it up and I'm going to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Millington, my next duty station. So since he hears I'm going there, so rich, and everybody's wondering, why are they talking for so long? Because normally it's a real quick, shake your hand, snap the picture, you move on to the next, because there's a line of people trying to take a picture with the president. But we were talking about the area. We were talking about Arkansas and Mississippi and Tennessee, and it was just the coolest thing. So I really enjoyed that tour. I've actually heard really wonderful things about him from people who have met him and said that he was just the loveliest person. So very really dynamic. Nice. I very never hear me. bad things. Yeah. Nope. Amazing. That is really amazing. So tell me after Groton, where did you go? What orders did you get? So back to mentoring and, and networking, I was listening to a Navy, I think she was a captain or, or commander at the time. And they talked about the importance of if you couldn't get a ship. So I hadn't been on a ship and, and your people will probably find this fascinating because I did 35 years on active duty, never did a step on a tour, no ship time. And it wasn't by design. I was so upset when I was enlisted because I wanted to stay in Southern California. I wanted to stay in San Diego. So I volunteered for any ship duty they had. I'll take any ship out of San Diego. They were like, no, we don't have anything. We don't have anything. So I was, went off to OCS. And then the, and the, the, the female that I was talking to said, hey, well, if you can't get a ship, which we don't have a lot of billets, because at that time we didn't have very many billets. Oh, we still don't have a whole lot to, today, to be honest, on ships, unless you're a surface worker officer, which I was not. And so she says, the next best thing is to terminate shore duty, which I was on. I was on a three-year shore duty tour and go overseas to some remote location. 
places like Diego Garcia, ADAC, Alaska. So I terminated shore duty after two years and went to beautiful, sunny Diego Garcia, seven degrees south of the equator, warm 24-7, 365. I was the message center division officer. I did satellite communications for for a year over there. I tried to extend. They said, no, we need (laughs) more people, officers to come over here to Diego Garcia. But I had a blast. So I left Groton, Connecticut as a lieutenant junior grade. 02, went over to Diego Garcia, put on 03 in Diego Garcia and had the time of my life. And, and still today are in touch with people that I met in both Groton, Connecticut. Some of my best friend, my, my brother, he calls himself my brother from another mother. I met in Groton, Connecticut. And then my friends I met in Diego Garcia, we're still in touch today. So that was a wonderful, wonderful, tour, albeit only one year. And when I left there, guess where I went? Long Beach, California. Back wow, California. back to Cali. I went to, I was the OIC officer in charge of the personnel support detachment for the Naval Hospital in Long Beach. Remember when they had a Naval Hospital in Long Beach Mm -hmm. way back in the day? I'm dating myself, but I was OIC at that PSD and working for some of the folks in the hospital there. They were amazing, very supportive. We were physically located in the hospital. And I'll never forget 7500 East Carson Street. And I had such a wonderful time. I had such great customers who came in there. And I did that tour for two years because, as you know, at the time, they decided to close down that naval hospital. And they also closed uh, a bunch of the naval station uh, that was there in Long Beach. So I was able to close that down. And then after that, I looked out again and went to the Monterey Bay Peninsula, where they said, well, we don't have any place for you, but we have an open slot at the Naval Postgraduate School. So why don't you feel that? I'm like, okay. So I went to the Naval Postgraduate School where they... um, allow officers to, from all services, to get their master's degree. So I got a master's degree at the Naval Postgraduate School, an 18-month program in national security affairs, strategic studies, which, you know, wasn't the discipline I was interested in, but it was all they had available. I'm like, I'll take it. And so I went to the Monterey Bay Peninsula and went to Monterey, the Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey for eight. And all I had, my entire job, I'm a lieutenant, you know, I'm getting paid as a lieutenant. My entire job was to go to school for, you know, 18 months. That so is incredible. That was amazing. So, and I got to write a thesis. My uh, thesis was presented before the president of the school, because at the time it was when we went into Haiti to try to re- help restore the democratically elected president. And I volunteered to go, but they wouldn't let women go. And, they, and I wasn't in the field. So they're like, no, we're only sending people who are in that field to go help. And I'm like, I, I could go and I could interview people and I could do this, that, and the other. Because my thesis was promoting democracy, the United States and Haiti, and trying to you know see if we could export democracy. So it was fascinating, a fascinating time. I got to come back to D.C. and interview some people here for my thesis. And it, it was very fascinating. So I enjoyed the 18 months in Monterey. Loved it there. It's so awesome. I'm stuck on, I was in Monterey getting paid to get a master's degree. <laughs> yes, I was a lieutenant getting in the Navy on active duty. And my only job was to go to school full. I mean, how could you not? That how is charming. My only job was, I mean, and I was the only one. There were, you know, we had some students there. We also had international students, but that's, that was our job was to go to school. So I gave it my best shot. I did the best that I could. I had a blast at Naval Post Graduate School, Excel there, still are in touch with people that I graduated with there and still get to go back there. So it was beautiful. I mean, how could it not? How could you not? So that was that was one of the best tours of my career because all you had to do was go to school. I mean, you were a civilian. You, you didn't have to wear your uniform every day. Now, uniform to me is easier because you don't have to think about it. 
but you wore civilian clothes. You got to experiment with wearing civilian clothes every day, go in the classroom, have this discourse with these amazing professors. It was amazing. It was awesome. And you were getting paid, you know, active duty pay. I mean, it was a charmed career for me. It really was in spite of the challenges, because so often, as I mentioned, I was the only one and you were automatically assumed that you were not as good as the next male in the room. Or if I'm in a, in a conference room and I would say, uh, we should take this approach or do this, no one would hear me, but they would hear the male when he said the exact same thing. And I would always say, well, you know, I said that a minute ago, just so that they knew it wasn't the first time they heard that, uh, whatever the suggestion might be. But in spite of those types of experiences, I had a ball, I had a blast. I've had some very great careers in Monterey, was just one of the best tours. I think that we feel that a lot amongst the females who who serve. I hear that a lot. Like I said this, but it was accepted from the guy. I think that is probably the number one challenge we face as women having to, you know, be as good, but just a little better. And then maybe not still not being taken as seriously. So I, f- I feel that, um, I hear that a lot, super common, unfortunately. But what I do love is how amazing your career is. Because a lot of times I hear sad stories of service and it makes me a little sad, but I love the good ones. And this is sounding awesome. I, I would like to have been a fly on the wall during your career because it sounds like so much fun. So tell me, where were you next? <laughs> so then... When I left Monterey, I wanted to go because I majored in Western Hemisphere, you know, and I wanted to go down in country somewhere like some of my army brethren got to go to Guatemala or whatever the case may be. But, you know, as an HR professional, the Navy says, well, we need you here. So I came to D.C. and I was doing a job at the the Bureau of Naval Personnel. And that same female commander who asked, who said I should go to Diego Garcia was here. And at the time, she was the first female to be in charge of the Navy Recruiting Command. Wow. So I went to see her for some mentoring and just some chat, some chit-chat. And she's looking at my record and was very impressed with what she saw. And she says, if ever I need a flag aide, I'm going to keep you in mind. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be a flag aide. I don't want to be a flag lieutenant. And so fast forward a few a year or so. She does need a flag aide. So she calls up the detailer and say, hey, um, is Lieutenant Williams available? And the detailer comes down and I'm doing my job. And and she's like, would you like to do this? I'm like, are you interested? And I said, no, I don't think so. And she's like, what do you mean? You can't turn down an admiral. I said, you asked me. You didn't say I had to go do this. You, You asked me if I wanted to. And I said, I like what I'm doing. And so bottom line, I couldn't turn it down. So but the admiral is specifically requesting that you come over and interview to be her flag aide or a flag lieutenant or loop. And so I went and we hit it off. And I was her flag aide for two years here in the D.C. area. And at the time I had applied for the White House program. And she says, I know that you've been selected for this program and I'm very familiar with the program. So you're welcome to go ahead and do that. And I was concerned because as a flag agent, you know, you're basically tied to their hip. But she didn't treat me as a personal assistant. She treated me as a Navy professional. I took care of everything that we needed to do as a team, whether we traveled or whatever the case may be. And after my first tour here, I was doing uh, I was responding, you know, the new ID cards that people have now, the CAT card. Mm-hmm. So when I came here, I was our benefits, eligibility, enrollment counselor, taking care of those. And we were the first ones who started building that cat card. So we started wow. looking at that 
And so the, the idea was to have everyone have one of those cool cat cards. And I know us retirees now and then reservists have a different little sort of cover. That wasn't the original intent. But so I left that job to become her flag aide. And we were both still in the D.C. area. And at the same time, I worked at the White House. So I just had a blast, um, had a really good time. We traveled all over the world to recruit because she said that, you know, the importance of getting in front of they would call them the bag toting the recruiters, recruiters who are going out into the schools and talking to the people. You know, she wanted them to see her and us. So the female flag officer a female flag lieutenant, and we were going around the country speaking to young people about the Navy. Because she says, how can you get young people in the Navy if you're not in front of qualified young people who can join the Navy? And so it, she, she felt as if it was our duty to travel as much as we could. So we did. We traveled all over the place. We even went to London. I mean, it was because we had, you know, people over there as well. So people in the Dodge School, the DOD defense schools who could also join the military. So we traveled quite a bit. Um, in our, and so it was really great. And it was thanks to her. And that was my first, um, I did about three years here in DC. And at the time, they were in the drawdown, the downsizing, and they were trying to save money. And they were sending commands out of DC and, and, and back out, off, out in the market and onto the bases. And we were building up the, Millington, the base in Millington, Tennessee. And so a lot of bases was moving, a lot of commands were moving down to Tennessee. And she knew I was from Mississippi and they were looking for someone to be a detailer, you know, the assignments officer that sends you to your next duty mm -hmm. station. Um, and so and they were looking for a minority because they wanted to have some sort of representation in the office. Not that you had to have it, but they thought, you know, if people were more comfortable talking with someone who looked like them, at least one of the three people in the office could be um, diverse. And so they said, we're looking for a minority officer. We want a lieutenant commander. I'm a lieutenant at the time. And she says, my Admiral says, Admiral Barb McGann, she's retired up in Newport now. She's like, my aide can do that job. And she's willing to move to Millington because most people didn't, they didn't mind doing the work. They wanted to do the work because it was important work, but they didn't want to move to Millington, Tennessee. And I've always been in the notion I would go anywhere. And I wasn't bound by a specific location. And I've enjoyed it. If you ask me to pick, a, you know, the best location, it's difficult because I've enjoyed every location I've been. And so she knew that I would go anywhere the Navy sent me. And so she's like, my aide can do that job. And she's willing to move to Millington. And they didn't want me because I was a lieutenant, but I got the job because who's going to say no to the Admiral, right? And she was in our community. She was an HR Admiral as well. So after D.C., the first time I went to Millington, built a brand new house, beautiful home, served there as an assignments officer and treated people like I would want to be treated. And I was successful in getting officers stationed where they needed to be stationed for their career, for the next step for the Navy and for them. And even people who were married um, enlisted to officer, because sometimes you have that, you have some people who may have been enlisted together and then one gets to go to officer school and becomes an officer. And so I was successful in getting them stationed together, spouse co-locations, you know? And so when I would meet people late, later on, they would say, oh, wow, you're Pat Williams? And I'm like, uh-oh, here comes a, a horror story. They're like, you sent me to the best duty station of my life. I had the best time. So it was so rewarding to run into people years later and, and have them tell me that the way that I treated them when I was a detailer um, was helpful to them in their careers and where I sent them. Even when one of the guys who had come over to our community from the surface warfare community and had been used to dealing with a different type of, of conversation when they were, you know, just told you go here, you go here, because they had so many requirements. Mm -hmm. We could be a little bit more flexible. 
And I was on the phone with him, I know, for like 45 minutes, and he couldn't choose. And I said, I've got to send you to a leadership position because not only is that what's good for the Navy, that's what's good for your career. Your next step needs to be department head. He says, well, my girlfriend wants to go to Florida because that's where she's from. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, you need a leadership tour and, and you need a department head tour. And I've got all of these, I think they were um, officer programs officer or enlisted programs officer at the recruiting stations. I've got any, you could, you could have your pick around the nation. And he says, you pick, I can't pick. I said, no, we've been on the phone for, and I, and I said to him, and he's like, so what are you timing me? I'm, I'm like, no, I'm not timing the conversation. I just want you to be able to make a choice. And I wanted to make you to make an, he never made a choice. So I chose NRD, Navy Recruiting District San Antonio for him, <laughs> because that's where I needed somebody to go. And it needed a enlisted programs officer. Fast forward. So I left the detail and I did two years there. Let the detailers out. My choice, you know, one of the perks for being a detailer is you're supposed to get your first choice. Didn't happen. Huh. The job I wanted was the MEPS, the Military Interest Processing Station in San Diego, because I needed an XO tour, right? I needed an 04 XO tour, Executive Officer Tour, to continue getting promoted. So I chose MEPS San, San Diego, and they said, uh, you know, I've got a couple, a, a military spouse couple, dual spouse couple. The guy is a surface warfare officer. He's going to be stationed in San Diego. I need his wife to be stationed with him. She's an HR, so I need her to take this job. I'm like, okay, whatever. Spouse Colo, I get it. So they took that job. They said, but I have San Antonio for you. You can go to the maps of San Antonio, but it's not for a year. I'm like, well, what am I going to do for a year? If I go to a command for a year, they're not going to want to let me go in a year because most tours, as you know, are two years. And so she says, well, you could go to the Naval War College. I'm like, I don't want to go to the Naval War College. Back to Newport where it's freezing cold. I said, I have a master's degree in national security affairs. Why would I do that? Well, we have a quota and we have a position open up there and you need a one-year tour. So off I go to the Naval War College in, in Newport, Rhode Island for a year again. And this time it's getting paid as an old four to go to college, to go to school, to earn a master's degree. And that, that, again, was one of the greatest tours. I had the best time. Again, I'm in touch with people that I met there to this day, going through school. To this day, I'm in touch with some of those folks. Some of them have retired. There are one or two still on active duty. So I went there for a year to prepare for my XO tour at the MEPS in San Antonio. And then at the time, they were three-year tours. And they were joint tours because you get joint credit. So I show up in San Antonio. Did a great, had a great time in Newport. My family, my sisters all came to graduation. My mom came to graduation, had a blast. Show up in San Antonio. And this officer is there because we were co-located at the recruiting station. I was a MEPS commander. And right next door was the, the recruiting district. And he came over to my office. And I was expecting, you know, a big blow up, a big fight. And he said, you know, I just want to thank you. This has been the best tour of my life. He said, I know I was difficult to detail, but you were patient with me. You treated me the way you would want to be treated as, as if I was as important as the next person. And I would just want to tell you, this has been the best tour. And I was blown away. I had no, you know, you just don't have, you have no idea the impact that you may have on another individual. And he just went into detail about how great a time and how he was excelling there and how he did well there. And I just really, really loved it. So that was really, really richly rewarding. And so I did, I did San Antonio for three years as the MEPS commander. And at the time when I got there, we were out in town 
but then we co-located. So we were physically located on Fort Sam Houston, right next door to the recruiting district. And so we had an opportunity to work with the Army Corps of Engineers. And it was just an amazing time. I have so many good things to say about San Antonio. And then I left there. And where did I come back to? D.C. They said, well, we need somebody in D.C. So I came to Naval Sea Systems Command. I don't know if you know, um, you knew back in 2013, they had that shooting at the Navy Yard. The mm-hmm. I remember. So that's where NAVC is. Naval Sea Systems Command is the, the largest systems command that we have. They're responsible for ships, submarines, you name it. So I was there as the total force manpower officer uh, working for doing the military personnel, working for the Admiral there, did it great three years there. And then when I left there, I thought, okay, because at the Naval Postgraduate School, I got JPME, Joint Professional Military Education Phase 1. In order to keep getting promoted as an officer, you have to have Phase 1 and Phase 2. And so I had set myself up to go to school to the National Defense Resource School to get JPMA Phase 2. And they said, "Uh, not so fast. We need a director of admissions at the Naval Academy. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm not a Naval Academy grad. I know nothing about the Naval Academy. You know, I heard that they eat their own over there. So why would I go to the Naval Academy? And they kept asking me, and I kept saying, no, I want to go get my JPME because I want to, at the time I was an 05, and I said, I want to stay competitive. I want to be as competitive as possible, as early as possible. That's what I would tell the young folks too, any you know, lieutenants or, you know, j- junior officers, instance coming along. Is and, and some of the minority officers, they didn't understand or females why they need to be at performing at 100% or 150% when their counterparts were only performing at 90%. That's because you want to do the best job you can consistently throughout so that there's no doubt about, you know, there's nothing else you could have done to advance your, your promotion if you've done all that you know that you can do in terms of performance. And so I said, you know, I need to stay on track. And they says, well, we need some diversity at the Naval Academy. We want somebody who thinks differently. And so I went over and I interviewed with the dean of admissions. And then they came back and they said, they were just not letting me out of this. And they're like, well, they want you. Like, they don't know anything about me. And I said, I want to go. They said, well, why would I send you to school for 10 months to get your JPME, your Joint Professional Military Education Phase 2, when I can send you to school for 10 weeks to get it down in Norfolk? Because there was a shorter school in Norfolk, Virginia. And I said, well, with all due respect, Admiral, I've been asking for this since 1995. I've wanted to get my phase two certification. And it is now 2007. And our community hasn't given, hasn't been able to allow me to go to the school. Every time I've been scheduled for the school, it's been canceled for some reason. And so she said, well, we're going to make it happen. I said, well, I thought the Naval Academy had an immediate need because it's April, mind you. And the current director of admissions was retiring in May. And so if I went to school, I wouldn't go till June and I wouldn't graduate till September. They're like, she's like, oh, well, they're willing to wait for you. I'm like, okay. So so I left Naval Sea Systems Command, went down to Norfolk for three months to go to school, got my phase two, showed up at Naval Academy in September of 2007 as their director of admissions, the first female, minority female director. I mean, they had one female before me, but the first minority director. And of course, my qualifications were questioned. And my boss would say, you know, not only is she a PhD, but she has the educational requirements. She has the experience. She's been there, done that. She can talk to the people that we need to talk to. So we had a great time there. Um, that was my first tour at the Naval Academy. Now, here I am. Now, and they said that we wanted someone who thought a little bit differently because you had some graduates there and they want those people too because they can say I experienced this or I did this but they also wanted that diversity of thought as well 
And so I was able to speak to people and young and have an impact on young people that it just touches me to this day. I remember a seventh grader came up in her little business suit. It was a cute little, you know, suit and skirt. And she wanted to know about success. She was seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to her and, and, and then, and she went off to do great things and, and, and join the military and her brother joined the military, joined, was at the academy and just did really great times. And we had some of the most diverse classes join the academy during that tenure and then in the school's history at the time. And then I left there and I wanted to go, I mean, well, I, I could go anywhere. And they said, well, we have three options. You could go to Fleet Forces Command in Norfolk, Virginia, which you know, if somebody hadn't been in the job for like three years and I'm thinking, well, I don't know how important that job is. Nobody's been doing it for three years. Or you can go to the uh, chief of naval operations staff in OPNAV here in D.C. And so I left the academy and came back and did four years on the OPNAV staff as a manpower requirements officer. I got to go to U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Now pay come out in Hawaii because they were one of our customers. Got to do all kinds of neat things. And then I did four years there. And fast forward the four years, I get the call from the Naval Academy. They're looking for a chief diversity officer. I'm like, wait a minute. I've never had that kind of a job. Yes, I'm minority. I'm representative of the minority population twice over. Well, they're looking for a chief diversity officer. And, you know, interestingly, when I was at the Academy the first time, we created that position um, because of you know everything that's going on in the world. And I knew the guy who came in and did that job. And when he was retiring three years later, he asked me, he says, you know, Pat, I think you'd be a great chief diversity officer. Why don't you take this job? And I said, well, that's not really in our HR core, you know, competencies of disciplines. You know, it's one of the things we do, but it's not, you know, one of the things that, you know, that's on the Navy's roster for us to do. So I better go off and do some big HR manpower requirements type job. So I said no. And I came off the op and four years later, they're like, um, we think you should come and be the chief diversity officer. So you can't run from your destiny. So <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a by name request at the Admiral, the three star over there. It was like, hey, you know, if, if you're interested, we'd love to have you come over and work with midshipmen again. You've been here before. You did three years successfully here. And so everybody still knows you. And one of the guys I went to the war college with, he was there as a personnel officer. So, of course, he was jumping up and down. Bouncing. Yeah, <laughs> you definitely want her. And I had been his detailer, too, and he knew me from the Naval War College. And so he's like, oh, yeah, you definitely want her. So I went there as the chief diversity officer and did another three years at the Naval Academy and just had the most amazing time. And two of the young women, one who she was prior enlisted as well. She had been in Djibouti, Africa. And she, somebody saw something in her. She ended up at the Naval Academy after doing like four years enlisted as a logistician. And she was struggling a little bit because she was a little older. She was like 27. It wasn't academically. She was smart, but she just didn't fit with the other students. So at an academic board, part of my job as the chief diversity officer was to sit on the academic board, that board to where if you're not doing well, whether it's physical, moral, or mentally, we say, okay, we, we take a vote to say, okay, this person isn't going to make it. They need to be um, released from the Naval Academy. So they voted to release her from the Naval Academy. And the superintendent turns to me and says, because the superintendent could override any vote, right? And says, I want to save her. And Pat, I want you to work with her. And I'm thinking, and this is, I'm just sitting in on the board now. I haven't even started work there yet. I'm sitting there. They said, we want you to experience this because this will be part of your duties when you start. Because the guy I was relieving was sitting right by me. But he turns to me and says, Pat, I want you to work with her. So to this day, Rolo, as she calls herself, we're in touch today. 
And she came and stood up. On, you know, when you do the retirement, if you've ever been to a retirement ceremony, and they have the passing of the flag and it starts with all your ranks. You know, if you were a captain, you have somebody representing you as captain, commander, lieutenant commander, all the way down. And I had a, a person representing me as a yeoman, as a YN1. Well, she, this young lady stood up for me as a, as a lieutenant JG in that chain of people. And then another young lady who had been accused at the Naval Academy of uh, cheat, a cheating scandal, which wasn't oh. the case at all. Their instructor had given them instructions on what to do in this exam. And he had allowed them to use the book. And because they were using the book, they all got the same answer because it was in the book, right? And so he said, well, there was this cheating schedule. So you all got the same answer. So you all cheated. And they said, well, we want you to do what they call an honor review. So we want you to work with this young lady. You know, they accused them of that. So we want to see where she is. And so honor remediation is what they called it. So I was working with her. And, and simultaneously, unbeknownst to either one of them, the, the professor who was having some sort of challenges, his boss came to me and said, as the chief diversity officer, I want you to work with him because I'm concerned about how he treats his students, especially how he treats the women and the minorities. And he says, I have assigned him this book that I had the book. It's called Microaggressions. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. book because we all have those subtle microaggressions, those micro and, you know, mm -hmm. micro and macroaggressions, those unconscious biases. He said, I assigned him to read this book and I want you to talk to him and have some counseling sessions with him afterwards to see if he's made any progress. Because if he's going to treat our female and our diverse candidates differently, then I have a problem with that. So unbeknownst to the two of them, I'm working with one of the young ladies that he'd accused of cheating, and I'm working with him as well. And thankfully, he got it. He says, you know, there are things in this book that I never, ever imagined. I didn't know anything about white privilege, didn't know I had it, didn't know it existed, didn't know about unconscious biases. So he was able to progress. And at the same time, she and these other students who had been accused of cheating hadn't really been cheating. They had just been using the book that they, as they were allowed. And one of the leaders in charge of the department said it was the most profound and thorough report they'd ever gotten. Because I, I wrote a report of her and my time together. Well, as an instance, she had just graduated. I think it was fast forward two years later. She stayed on at the Naval Academy. You know, I kept her, you know, on a remediation. You either keep them at the Naval Academy or you recommend that they be dismissed. And because she had not cheated one, and because she was super smart and intelligent, and I met with this kid weekly, both of them, you know, one I met twice a week for two years. And after the first one became academically sad, she's like, I said, you know, Rosa, you don't have to come see and see me once a week anymore. She's like, oh, no, man, this is a highlight of my week. I'm, I want to come see you every day, every week. I want to keep. So we saw we met every week for two years. And then the other young lady, the honor remediation. We met too. And then when I got ready to retire, I told my folks, I said, reach out to this person and, and you know, they'll probably do it. And she was the instant. She had just graduated from the Naval Academy like in May. And my ceremony was June 14th. And she came over, she drove over from, from Annapolis to be the instant in my flag detail. I had a YM1. I had her as the ensign who had just graduated from Naval Academy. The Lieutenant JG, she drove up from Norfolk. She was on a ship in Norfolk, the one that they wanted, they voted to kick out mm -hmm. of the academy that the soup said, not so fast. Let's, uh, I mean, she was prior enlisted because if we had kicked her out, she would have gone back to the fleet, you know, and basically she would have been seen as a failure, right? Because you go to the Naval mm -hmm. Academy, you don't make it after two years. 
And it was more about assimilation, that sense of belonging. And so that was where our conversation would lead to is, okay, let's talk about what's going on. And she would say, well, these privileged, these snotty nose little kids. I said, well, you know what, Rosa? You too are one of the privileged elite. Now, not everybody gets to come to the Naval Academy. And so you want to talk about those kids. Well, let's take it back and do some self-reflection and look at ourselves and see where we are today. So, and she got it and it made sense to her. And so it was just such a joy to have both those young women stand up for me in my ceremony when I transitioned from the Navy after 35 years. And, and just those two tours at the Naval Academy were, if it had been up to me, I wouldn't have done either one of them. I tried my best to get out of both of them, but they were so richly rewarding for both me and for the students. And while I was there, both times I taught sophomores or youngsters, as we call them at the Academy. I taught ethics and moral reasoning for the Naval leader. And we talked about real life stories, things that were happening like that movie, The Lone Survivor. We would talk about that and we would say, okay, what's right and how do you know? And if it were you in that position, what would you do? And, and what choice? Just try to get the midshipmen thinking. We use the Socratic method of reasoning just to get them thinking. I would not often give them the right answer, but just to get them thinking about how they, their decision-making process and what they would do. Because so often, as you know, some of the young folks, they graduate the Naval Academy and they're off. You know, at the time we were in the height of the, the, you know, the conflicts everywhere over the world. And so they would be off in conflict and they would write back saying the best class they had at the Naval Academy was the ethics class because it prepared them for leadership in the fleet. They would be in Afghanistan, Iraq, you name it, all kinds of hotspots. And they had to make those ethical decisions. And so it was so rewarding. I, and I, I don't consider myself a teacher, although I've been teaching online classes now forever, but it's my point of giving back. And so I, I learned that at the academy that although I thought it was something I didn't want to do, they kept insisting. They said, we need more fleet, more post-command commander, oh. people who have been in leadership positions in the fleet. to Because, you know, it's one thing to get it academically, to be, you know, the academic brain and to be that philosopher. So we had a, it was a tag team teacher. We had a philosopher, you know, a PhD philosopher who would teach the philosophy of the classes. And then you would have, a military person like myself, a pair with that philosopher, he would teach the lecture on Monday and then Wednesday and Friday, I would take the class and we would talk about practical applications. We would talk about the concepts they've learned in the lecture. And then I would make them do a presentation so that they would have their presentation skills together so that they would be, you know, really be ready when they hit the fleet because these were youngsters, right? We call it two for seven. So you do two years at the Naval Academy at any service academy. You can do the first two years without any sort of payback, without it. You could walk away after the first two years if you wanted to and say, okay, I want to go back to the fleet or I just want to go back to civilian life. But if you sign on the dotted line after two years, then you've committed to do the next two years at the academy, finish your four-year, get a bachelor's degree, and then do five years of service at a minimum. If you're aviation, you may do a little bit longer, but at a minimum, you would do a five-year tour. So it was a really important tour for those young people. So that's why we thought the ethics course was so important, because they could think about the ethical choices that they would have to make throughout their careers, and about being a leader, and about being a, an effective leader, and leading people. They were going to be leading. You know, you're going to put these young people who were often, like the problem the young lady was having, Rosa, was she was like 27-ish or so. And so she was a little bit older. And some of her colleagues, you know, her you know, classmates were, you know, they were college students. They were 21, 22. They were young. And they're mm -hmm. going to go out and be in charge of people in the fleet. So it was really critical that they understood the responsibility they had. So they would write back and talk about how important and how critical the concepts they learned in the ethics course was. And so at that time, I learned, okay, 
I can do this teaching thing. It's not so bad. And every time I want to quit, the, the course coordinator would say, Pat, you can't quit. Have you looked at your reviews? I'm like, no, I'm not getting paid to be a teacher. I'm here as the director of admissions or I'm here as a chief diversity officer. I'm only teaching because you say you need, you know, post-command commanders to help out the classroom. And so, but he's like, look at your reviews. You can't teach. You got to keep teaching. And I had some of the most amazing classes. And thinking about the game yesterday, one class I had one, two, three, four football players in the class. And I had a soccer player and I had a, fee, a couple of females who were on, on sports because they all had to play some kind of bar, some whether it was varsity sports or intramurals, they all, re, you know, for the physical mission, they had to, re, they were required to play some sort of sports. And so, but that was the most charismatic, the most, we had the most chemistry in that class. And I'm in touch with some of those kids today. They went off and they graduated and they so they're serving their country and they're doing really, really well. So, you know, I went to the Naval Academy both times, sort of kicking and screaming, but I had the time of my life. Really did well. That sounds absolutely amazing. I get a chance to work with adults now. Um, uh, One of the other things that I do is I work with adult learners online um, through this Mm -hmm. academy based in London. And I teach them things like podcasting and digital business. And right now we're doing definance because my background is in finance and accounting. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on here, but I'm teaching them cryptocurrency. (laughs) Essentially, I'm supporting... are head teachers with that. And I take a team of people through a four-week course or an eight-week course, and it's sort of like boot camp for them. And it's it's a lot of the leadership that I learned in the military and from having mentors, like, like people like you that helped me through. And I do remember having an ensign <laughs> in the pharmacy. And when he first got there, or when I first got there, we all thought, oh my God, this guy, <laughs> you know, but after a while, like it, the more he got warmed up into it and and started to interact with the enlisted a little more, he really he really developed and he was awesome. It was an ama- it was amazing to work with him actually after a while. And I can see how your Rosa was Rosa, the 27 year old, mm-hmm. um, how she was how she might have felt going in as enlisted and being like, oh, my God look at how these snotty people are like, I could understand that. But I think that once you get into the fleet, even as an officer and you start to interact with your enlisted and you, you get the energy, the vibe of the command and, and your workspace, you sort of, those skills are necessary. Those, those critical thinking, those ethics, those moral skills are so necessary for you to guide your people because we're not going to listen to you. Okay. We will listen because we have to listen, but will you be respected? Maybe not. Right. And that's what she found. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, when I left the Academy the last time as a chief diversity officer, my last tour, you'll get a kick out of this, was at the Washington Navy Yard again, where I started my career when I came back to DC in 2004. I was the deputy comptroller. (laughs) <laughs> deputy director for field support activity. So I, my lab was in financial management and audit. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, the Navy doesn't really have financial managers or, or, or accounting people. The closest we come is our supply corps officers. But we, pro- we typically need them in big logistical supply jobs. So for the financial management job like this, they typically put an HR officer in it. So we were the chief of naval operations comptroller. And so my my last job for the last two years was financial management. And I, and I love that. You know, and I could have easily seen myself going off to work for somebody like EY or some of those big auditing companies or some financial management companies. It was a great tour. So I, I again got to work with 
Indo-PACOM, US Pacific Command was one of our customers. Then the US Navy Band was one of our customers. So we provided financial management and auditing support to those commands, and including the director of Navy staff and also the chief of Naval Operations. So that was a wonderful last two years to spend right here at the Navy Yard uh, doing financial management and audit. We didn't do cryptocurrency, but um, it was really interesting to round Soon. out that way. <laughs> Soon, right? Soon. I'm telling you, the next 10 years, I can see it coming. I can foresee it. In fact, this is my PSA for everyone who is listening, who's lucky enough to listen. Don't snooze on this whole cryptocurrency movement. It is revolutionary. It's not going anywhere. Get involved now before the average everyday person is priced out because it's going to happen. That's my PSA for all of you because I love you. But anyway, so let's talk about your transition out because that was your last duty station. And after 35 glorious years, and I they sound glorious to me. I don't think I'm the only one <laughs> who's coming away from hearing this story thinking, wow, what a career. I mean, oftentimes I hear like I didn't deploy and I felt some type of way about it. Like I felt shaded or I felt guilty because I didn't deploy. But you didn't deploy in 35 years and you were able to keep moving upward. You were upwardly mobile. You got to have great duty stations, even though at some point you might have been kicking and screaming a little bit to go there. But it turned out beautifully. And you had this amazing career. So why did you decide to leave? Could you have stayed a little longer? Were you just like, okay, 35 years is enough? Well, you know, you become statutory, right? So Mm -hmm. in the Navy, you you have to keep getting, in in any service, you have to keep getting promoted. And I was an HR professional. We were a community of about, at the time, maybe about 400 officers. And we only had one flag officer. And I was an 06 at the time. And so the next pay grade to me would have been 07. So you have to keep getting promoted. And if there's no spot for you, we had a flag officer. We had just promoted one great officer. So I was at my third, you know, you have so many years you can spend as an 06. And, and the only way I was allowed, you know, as an 06, you can do 30 commission years. That's the rule. That's the law. It's not just a rule. It's not just a, you know, happy to glad, but it's the law. And I was only able to do 35 because of my five years enlisted. Most commission officers, if they make 06 and there's no spot for them for 07 for flag officer or general officer, then you have to go home. It's called statutory retirement. So you get to 30 years. And if you don't make 07, then you have to go home. And because we had already promoted a flag officer in the HR community, it would be another, we thought it was going to be two years, but it turned out to be another four years before we made another, because a couple of years, you know, the promotions kind of stagnated and we didn't make an officer in the HR community at all because we were so small. And so it comes a time when you have to go home. So I didn't have a choice, but I would have stayed. So after 35 years, and my sister laughed at me to this day because she says, you know, when you got out of boot camp and you went to San Diego, you were hating life because that was my first time away from home. I left Mississippi, went to boot camp in Florida, went back to Mississippi for school, for A school, went to California. I'm out there all by myself. I didn't know any. But fast forward 35 years later, I'm having the time of my life. And I'm like, oh, I would stay in the Navy as it was. I think I did what they call retire, retain, because in my job, I told you we were the deputy, con- I was a deputy consul, so we were the consul for the CNO. So it was a pretty important position and they didn't have a relief yet. So I was, this was like June. So my relief was not going to get on board until September. So I did what they call retire, retain. So that I retired in June, but they kept me on the active duty rolls until September of that year, until September 30th, until my relief could get on board so that they could have that continuity so that they could have, you know, you that, that was, wasn't a position you would get, right? 
they had the officer in mind that they wanted to come behind me, but she couldn't get there till September. And I retired on June 14th. My ceremony was on June 14th. So I was what they call retire, retain. And my sister laughed because she says, look at you. You don't even want to leave the Navy now. <laughs> and I remember when you said you couldn't wait to get out. And so things changed a lot. So, yes, I was statutory. And um, there's no way I could have stayed on active duty uh, without getting promoted to flag officer. If I had been in another community and we had more slots, but we were a very small community. And like you may be familiar with the PAO community, the public affairs, where they were even smaller. They only had 200 positions. And so it's just very difficult to promote in more than any one. Well, it's not difficult. It was impossible. We only had the one slot, one uh, active duty flag officer and one reserve officer. And we, and that's still the case to this day. So you just have one at a time. And and a lot of people, you know, will, will get promoted and others won't. And so it was a matter of either you get promoted or you go home. It's called statutory retirement. So I, would, I retired after 35 years. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But it was a great transition. I could have done another couple of years. But now I'm thinking, wait a minute. Like most of my com- compadres who retired, like, why did I wait so long? Why? I was comfortable. I was loving life. I was making a difference. I felt I was having a really good time. And but then I'm like, wait a minute, life is pretty groovy on the outside. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. After I've made this transition, there is so much out here. And because I wasn't ready, although I felt like I was worldwide assignable, and when I started kind of looking for jobs, I didn't really look because I, I went to lunch with some friends of mine, and the young lady said, Why don't you apply to this position at MOA, the Military Officers Association of America? We're hiring in our career transitions, but I'm like, well, I haven't even got my resume together yet. She's like, it, it ends today, though, so get your resume in. So then I'm like, and I, I didn't take it seriously. I thought, okay, I'll submit the resume just for kicks and giggles, right? This will be some experience as I get ready to move into the job. Because I really thought I would go into some big financial management and audit job, or I really liked the diversity officer work. I thought, okay, maybe, because I had gotten some, some nudges from like Georgetown, University, like, why don't you come teach here? And I'm thinking, okay, well, I could do that too, or go into academia or something like that. Cause mm-hmm. I, I had my PhD and I, I had the teaching experience. And so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I wasn't wedded to any particular location. I could go anywhere. So she says, apply. So I apply for this position. Then five interviews later, you know, they give me this job offer. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I better take this job seriously. <laughs> And, you know, I was still kind of hesitant. I talked to a lot of folks and I accepted the position. So I'm program management, engagement and career transition at the Military Officers Association of America. And we had two commercials yesterday at the Army-Navy game. And and our primary mission is advocacy, as you probably know, on Mm -hmm. behalf of the entire military uniform community, not just officers. I mean, we're an officer, a membership base, but we advocate for pay, compensation, you know, healthcare benefits for the entire military community, officer, enlisted, reserve, guard, spouses, survivors, you name it, we advocate for them. And, you know, we provide career transition advice. And it's important to me because I worked up until the very end. I was so busy. I was at the Pentagon and the CNO's office and the director of Navy staff and our three-star offers doing work for the Navy up until and somebody else planned my retirement. You know, I had a great group of people around me. They planned my transition. And I just basically showed up at the ceremony. And then I, I walked, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm out of the Navy already. And so it was very surreal for me. So, and then two weeks later, I'm working at MOA because I went wow. ahead and accepted the position. They were looking for somebody right then and there. 
So I think I applied to this job in like April. I retired in June. And July 8th, I was on the staff at MOA. And I'm like, you know, it's so, so, so a lot of people, I say, if you've got the time and you want the time, especially people who, it was a little bit easier for me because I'm single. I don't have any kids. I say, I'm still looking for Mr. Wright. I don't know where he is. But <laughs> um, some people who have family decisions to make, whether they have kids in school or spouse's career to follow, I said, make sure you plan it. And, and if you want to take time off, whether it's two months, four months, six months. I know a colleague of mine took nine months off. A, a, a person I just talked to last week took a year off to help take care of her elderly parents. So it's a personal choice, but I encourage people to give it some thought, give it some time because you may decide. Now, for me, it was fine. I did the two weeks, you know, went to Orlando on vacation, came back and jumped right into the BOA job and been working ever since. But just, just encourage people to Think about their transitions in advance and decide. Don't let it decide for you, but decide what it is you want to do, how much time you want to spend up. Can you afford, as you know, in the financial management world, have you, do you have your crypto available or have you figured out your finances? Do you have that budget to support you until you get the position that you're looking for? I'm not concerned about you getting the position because there are companies out there looking for the skill sets that military veterans bring to the table. And as anybody who's looking at the news can see, the jobs are out there. If people want to work, there are many positions out there. You may do something different than what you did on active duty, like, but that's fine. Like I have a colleague who also did, as an 06, she did 30 years in the Navy. She is a Naval Academy grad. She did 30 years on active duty as an IT professional, but then she's at MOA doing career transition work. So she turned around and did something completely different. At least for me, the career transition piece is akin to the human resources, you know, discipline that I did in the Navy for 30 plus years. But for her, it's completely different. So you too may decide to do something different. But the key is to think about these things, reflect on who you are, do that personal assessment on who you are, what you want to do, what's important for you and your family, and then make the best choice possible. And if that's taking time off, great. If it isn't, if you want to just hit the ground running like I did, you know, I don't feel any worse for wear. I mean, I have, I'm working with a great company. They were very supportive. And, and it's been two years already. I can't even believe it. I don't know where the time is gone. <laughs> it has been two years. I retired June 14, 2019. Wow. What an amazing career you had. I'm going to ask you, for those coming up behind you, what advice you would have for them to have an amazing career like you did? First and foremost, keep an open mind. And not only that, give it your all. You know, you, to me, I always say to people, you're on 24-7, 365. And just because no one sees you, you know, you want to do the right thing consistently because it's the right thing to do. And that's one of the things I used to try to teach the midshipmen when I was in school. And I date myself, but I would make them, um, I would encourage them to go find an episode of the old Western series, Daniel Boone. I don't even know if you've heard of the name <laughs> Daniel Boone, but yes. the, the character on the show, no matter whether the, the the bad guy was right or wrong, he consistently did the right thing for the right reason. So I wanted them to get in their minds of doing the right thing consistently because it's the right thing to do. That's that honor, duty, country. And so if you approach every job that you have with enthusiasm, no matter where it is you end up, you may not, it may not be your first, it may not be on your list at all of places to go. But regardless of that, know who you are. Go in there with the attitude of I'm going to do the best job I can and excel at every job you do. Like I would tell the young lieutenants, you know, especially the minority females, perform above and beyond 
go above and beyond. 150% is what you're going to give. Even if the other, your counterparts only give an 80%, I want you to always give 100%. They want to know, well, why do I have to give so much? Because we have so much to offer. And so often we're unseen and unheard. But if you perform, they're not going to help but to be able to hear you. And you're going to be successful because ultimately it's about performance. At the end of the day, you know, no matter what you've done or said, it's about what what have you performed? What have you done for me lately? Right. So if you go in there with that attitude of I'm going to be the best that I can and, and no matter where I land up, one of the Marine generals had this uh, quote saying, he used to say, bloom where you are planted. So no matter where you go, if you take on that attitude of I can do this and, and treat people that go, the golden rule of treat people the way you would want to be treated, take care of people that work with you. You know, I don't say work for me, but those people that I work with, even though you're in a leadership position, if you treat those people, you know, take care of those people. That's one of the things I learned. And I think that comes from my enlisted background as well. As you know, they find out who you are and how you're treating them. They'll go to the ends. of You don't have to worry about what they will do. They will go to the ends of the earth for you. And leaving you in battle, never. They would make sure that you got out of it. So they would take care of you. If you take care of your people, they will take care of you. And so th- that's just some of the things I ascribe to. But if you go in with that mentality of I'm going to be the best that I can, and, and have that positive attitude always. I mean, life is not a bed of roses every day for everybody. But mm-hmm. if you wake up with that mentality of, you know, we too shall overcome, I think you can still be successful no matter where you are, who you are, or what you're doing, or what you're facing. Beautiful advice. <laughs> Thank you so much for it. I mean, I can apply that in what I'm doing right now today. <laughs> so um, I think it's it's helpful for everybody, no matter what stage of your career you're in, if you're active, if you're veteran status, retired, whatever you're up to right now. Beautiful, beautiful advice. And thank you so much for it. So I want to wrap this up soon because I want to respect your time. And we've been talking for a while and I know you're very busy. And so I want to thank you for coming. But before I do, uh, and before we wrap up, I just have a couple of more questions for you, if you don't mind. Awesome. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about MOAA and what exactly they do to help the community and how we can get involved. Oh, wow. Well, I encourage you to go to MOAA.org. That's the Military Officers Association of America.org. And you can see there, you can see all the things that we, we, we do. You can see how to join us. And again, we are a membership. We are 350,000 strong and numbers matter. If anybody's familiar with AARP, you know that when you go on Capitol Hill, numbers matter. If you've got the numbers behind you, they tend to listen. So we are, our staff is small. We're 84 strong, but we're mighty. We have over 400 chapters across the nation. And so they're out counseling chapters. They're out trying to make a difference in their state legislation. And then on a, like, you know, whether it's, it's you know, like, you know, that there are a few states like Texas, Florida that have no state taxes. And also they, I, I like to say, military retirement pay friendly. They're like, well, where are you going to end up? Well, I want to go to a state ultimately that's military retirement pay friendly. So you have people on the state level in our councils and chapters who are working with their state legislators to try and attract veterans to their, their, their states, right? Because the more veterans you have in your state, you know, they know the kind of makeup we have, right? You know, like the, the positive thing that you're doing. I just want to say, I'm so proud of what you're doing. You're doing amazing work. I love what you're doing. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. Because I was a communications major in college, right? That was my college major. So I'm so proud of what you're doing. But 
They want veterans to come to their state. No matter if you did two years, four years, five years, 30 years, they want veterans in their state. So we have that state-based legislation that that's a part of, of what we do at MOA. And then we also have that national level advocacy that where, where we go on Capitol Hill and we used to call it storm in the hill. But after this year, we no longer call it storm in the hill. We call it advocacy in action. So our campaigns are now advocacy in action. And we partner with our legislators. I may partner with the, the legislature from, from Maryland now that I live in Maryland or when I was on active duty and I was, you know, my state was Mississippi, I would partner with the legislators from Mississippi and we would go try to advance legislation on behalf of all of our veterans, not just our membership, but all of our. So any officer who served any amount of time can join as a, a basic member, a premium member, or even a life member. And there are certain benefits that go with each of those memberships. But in terms of our advocacy, we advocate on behalf of the entire military and veteran community. And you probably saw in the news um, that we lost the great hero, Bob Dole, this past weekend. Well, one of my programs is the caregiver program for military veterans. So I met Mrs. Elizabeth Dole. I work with her on a regular basis and, and her entire staff, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. They are amazing, amazing people. And then the piece I have is the caregiving. So anyone who's dealing with military caregivers, that's part of my portfolio. We have a caregiver online guide that caregivers can go and find, whether it's financial resources, educational resources, or any sort of help that they may need if they're a caregiver. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation and Hidden Heroes, they provide a respite relief. If you're a caregiver and you're caring for your veteran and you need some respite, you just want to go out and get your nails done or you want to, I want a little bit of a break. They provide free respite relief for those caregivers. So wow. there's such an amazing repertoire of services that we do provide in addition to our advocacy, which is our core work, our advocacy. In terms of the local bases, I'm in the D.C. area. Our headquarters is in Old Town, Alexandria. Like you've got a joint base, Anacostia Bowling. You've got Fort Myer. You've got Henderson. You've got a lot of military bases. So those bases have transition assistance programs. And so the law requires military members who are leaving the military to go and get a transition assistance to help Mm -hmm. them with their transition, to do it better than I did. Don't just take two weeks off if you want to take two months or whatever the case may be. And so at MOA, we provide, and in fact, I'm doing one on the 15th, I think it is, for joint base Anacostia Bowling. It's called a Marketing Yourself for a Second Career Presentation. And I'll spend wow. a couple of talking to them about what the current state, you know, first I just give them a little, you know, promo about what MOA is and our career services that we provide. But I talk about what the current job market is, what the state of the economy is, you know, how they can do their personal assessment, you know, what, what they can look for, what they should be doing. I talk about salary negotiation. I talk about resumes, LinkedIn, um, all of that stuff that benefits and negotiation so that they can be better prepared when they make the transition. So I spend a couple of hours and we call it marketing yourself for a second career. And we do that for the local bases and installations nationwide. And when we were not traveling last year in the height of the pandemic, we started to pick up a little bit now. So we'll go, in addition to the D.C. area, we'll go to different bases. My colleague just went to Barksdale and did a presentation there. So we'll go out in person and present the same. We do it virtually now, but primarily we do it in person. Like this week for Joint Base Anacostia Bowling, I'm doing it virtually. But we will go out if somebody's ready to do it in person, we'll go out in person. She just went to Louisiana last week and I'm looking to go to Georgia, Florida next year. And so we'll go out and present the same presentation at their transition assistance programs, just as a module. Sometimes we'll do a one hour module just so that we can talk through 
how you market yourself, how you get ready. You know, what do you put in your resume? How do you do your LinkedIn profile? Those types of things, tips and and, and secrets of the trade, if you will. So that's Amazing. some of the, and I work in the career transition center, but we also have a communications department. We have a marketing and membership department. And we, of course, we have HR department, but again, and everybody helps in advocacy, but I don't work in government relations. I help and I assist, but I work in our career transition uh, center. And I, I spend, like if you were a member and you said, hey, you know, I would like you to look at my resume. I would have you send it. And then it would come in and one of us as one of our career transition experts would get your resume. We would review it. We would then schedule a phone call. I'd spend an hour on the phone with you and I would talk through your resume. I would give you some tips and tools and techniques to, to improve your resume. And I would also review your LinkedIn profile and spend an hour on the phone with you walking through and just listening and doing some career counseling and advice and helping you with your resume and your LinkedIn profile. You don't have to pay to get that service done. We would provide that as a member benefit to our more members. And we do virtual career fairs that are open to everybody. Most of our webinars and career fairs are open to the wider military community, whether it's you know active duty. You know, If you were out and you just wanted to say, hey, I don't want to do this podcast anymore. I want to do something else. So I'm going to join in on this virtual career fair and see what they're doing. We do webinars, we do career fairs, and we have a ton, you know, whether there's Amazon, Booz Allen Hamilton, CACI, a ton of employers come. The Aerospace Corporation were there on the last one we had on November 30th saying, hey, we don't just need engineers. We need logisticians, we need HR, we need all kinds of folks. We need financial managers. And so we do those, we've been doing the career, we do them in person, but we've been doing them virtually because of the pandemic that we've been in. But we just provide a lot of webinars. So if you go to moaa.org, there's a wealth of information on the site that they can find out more information if, if interested. Outstanding. Well, everybody knows who listens to this show. I will put the details in the description box of the episode. That is where you read what this particular episode is about when you are on your platform where you listen to your podcasts, Apple or Google or Spotify or wherever. I'm pretty much everywhere. By the way, I'm also on iHeartRadio and Pandora these days. So you can check us out there. And I want to thank you so much, Pat. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I have enjoyed so much hearing about your career. It sounds wonderful. I love I love all the stories. They're all so important to be shared, but it's great when you hear such an exceptional one and you're so happy and you've continued to serve. And usually we hear about difficult transitions. I had one as I changed my career when I left the military, I didn't continue in the pharmacy. And it's oftentimes a struggle. So it's great to get advice about how to pre-plan and to prepare to transition and to know that there are people out there like yourself who can help us to transition better. And organizations like MOAA who are out here doing good work, helping with veterans and up on the hill doing the good work for us legislatively. And just, it's amazing to be in partnership with MOAA and and to have this experience with you today. So thank you. Nakia, thank you so much. Our motto, as you probably know it in MOAA is never stop serving. And it has been a true honor and privilege to chat with you this morning and this afternoon for me. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for promoting our veterans and continuing to serve yourself. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed chatting with you. This has been really fun. And so with that, I'm going to wrap it up. 
And I know that MOA has a new webpage all about retirement. So I will add that in the description box also. And if you want, follow me on Instagram and at Twitter at FemVetPodcast. And don't forget to keep listening. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I love you guys. And I will talk to you next time.